This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Ni hao. Okay. Um, <laughs> and this is episode 48, and tonight we're talking about Once Upon a Time in China Part 2, the rather legendary sequel to Once Upon a Time in China, released only one year after the original film because Hong Kong does not waste time when it comes to making sequels. But before we obviously get into that, it's obviously time to ask you what you've been watching. And Stephen, I mean, it's obviously been a funny couple of weeks. I mean, it's the sort of time when people suggesting that we call a Mofra is a more sensible suggestion than what the president is suggesting we do. So have you managed to find any sort of solace in anything good at all? Has it just all been downhill? Um, well, so I've taken the opportunity to catch up on a few things, um, a couple of things off the watch pile, and a bit of surprise, and and something which will, will hopefully make your heart grow two sizes bigger, but we shall see. Um, so to start off with, I caught late last year's Korean action police drama procedural film Hit and Run Squad. Uh, starring um, Gong Hyo Jin, who's a female Korean actress I'm a big fan of because she's a little bit different to everybody else. It's yeah, it's it's one of these sort of high concept police dramas. Basically, she's a she's a, a policewoman that she's trying to get this sort of industrialist who's also a Formula One racing car driver for some crime he's committed. Um, the sting goes wrong. She gets the blame and she gets demoted to what's basically the hit and run squad, which is basically people who investigate fatal car accidents. However, this being a film and a Korean film, um, it's not any old department. Basically, it's her and some other guy and the other guy is an ex criminal who's not actually allowed to drive but he's also an idiot savant and can you know detect clues from things from the tiniest shard of glass you know the kind of thing as it turns out pretty much the first case they come across results into into the same guy that she was trying to track down in her previous world and they try and get him for 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 his crimes and it's in a it's a little bit fast and furious, I suppose, Korean style, um, but not because there's only two car chases in the whole film. And it's kind of all right. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, got, it's got quite a nice high concept. It's, got, it's well acted, even though the, the lead bad guy, um, Ryu John yeol is, is a bit over the top. Um, yeah. actually, actually, no, isn't it? It's Joe Jung-suk, isn't it? But it, 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 it's fine. Um, I kind of like these sort of high concepts police dramas anyway the problem it has is is that it ends at the end of the second act and that would have been a fine film but instead they add another 45 minutes on where there's been a big twist and i don't want to ruin the twist for anybody who watches it and what that actually turns the film into is really freaking long and boring <laughs> and so if it had been the first two-thirds of the film yeah it would have been fine it wouldn't have been spectacular but it would certainly have been watchable unfortunately I found it a bit of a chore in the end because it was trying to cram too much in. And then in the uh, 
well, I would say the mid-credit sequence, but it was barely when the credits had started. They lay the seeds for a sequel. I'm not sure there will be a sequel. I don't think it did well enough. But it was it was really nice to see Gong Hyo Jin in a, in a sort of an action role rather than a um, in in a sort of dramatic role, which is is what she normally appears in. And it's quite good, you know, if if you, you know for, for a Korean film, there's at least um, three strong female leads. Um, the, the the main male lead is, is kind of interesting. The, the the villain's a bit pantomime, but that's okay. It's 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 fine, but at 133 minutes, it's at least 33 minutes too long. What else did I see? And then I was looking on Netflix. Um, I was um, I'm I've done an appearance on the Easter. Eastern Kicks podcast where we talk about um, Hong Kong comedy and I was I was looking out for some some Hong Kong comedies to talk about and I found something I'd, I'd never watched before um, a Stephen Chow film that I'd, I'd never watched which was really surprisingly on Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime as, as we've talked about before has a really eclectic selection of films it's a bit like going to CEX or something like that and finding someone's video collection that's <laughs> just been laid bare um, so along Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle and Justice My Foot there's a film called Lookout Officer now Lookout Officer is a remake of Sammo Hung's Where's Officer Tuba or Tuba um, basically a, um, Bill Tung plays a policeman, do you see the theme for this week um, who's killed in the line of duty and he goes up to heaven and it's a very Christian heaven, and he goes up to heaven, and he's not allowed in because he's told that he killed himself. But he said, I didn't kill myself, I was shot by somebody, and there's basically an administrative error. It's a bit heaven can wait, yeah. Um, And they say, right, you can go down, you can take over somebody who's got a particular birthmark on their buttock, and if you can solve your your, your death, the, the person kills you, you you can come back into heaven again so of course the person that he goes into is Stephen Chow it's um it's an early Stephen it's 1990 but it's it's not quite all for the winner Stephen Chow um and basically this uh, Bill Tung goes inside him and and eventually after some adventures they 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 solve the mystery of the of of the crime there's no spoilers there but it's very um it's a bit slapstick and a bit crazy which surprises nobody um involving his um his partner who's also a taoist monk who is uh, learning how to stretch his arms out really long um there's a beautiful lady who happens to be his partner's daughter who Stephen Chow falls in love with so there's a bit of a romance angle there um it's just a classic hong kong comedy it starts off as a bit of an action um police film turns into a slapstick comedy there's a lot of um let's just say shit and piss jokes in it much Mm -hmm. more than normal but what was really interesting i thought about it was that all that really quite gross out and there's a lot of catch it jokes which are really gross um actually pay off in the end um and usually these sort of films you know we talked about god of gamblers last time you know you, you have all this wacky crap going on and it doesn't really play into the main plot and, it, and usually things will start and then they tie up at the end and you've had some nuttiness in the middle all the weird stuff every crazy scenario that the film goes through actually ends up feeding into the solution of the problem um, I mean, it's all a bit forced and a bit ridiculous, but at least it shows that everything had had a reason. Um, so yeah, and it and it's on Amazon Prime, and it's really weird, and it's it's really quite entertaining. So I enjoyed that. And finally, 
I started watching a um anime. All right, which one? The anime I chose was Steins Gate, um, because I just kind of I think I must have come across it in some other media, and I kind of like the premise. I love time travel okay. stuff and and stuff like that. However, I've only watched the first episode, and that was a week ago, because hmm. I found it almost impenetrable. I thought. The visual stylings were magnificent. I thought it looked absolutely great. And I think I like the premise of the plot. But I found it... Everything that I thought I would hate about anime was in it. Um, yeah. In terms of the, the, the staccato uh, scenes, the way everything's quick and doesn't really... And, and things sort of happen and you're meant to understand it. And people just appear and shout and scream and then they go away again. And... I can see maybe if I stick with it, and, and I will, um, that it probably gets better, and I kind of understand that the sort of the stylings and the and the rhythmic and the rhythm of of what the creators are trying to do. It, it's kind of hard, isn't it, to create lots of sort of twenty odd minute? Is it twenty four? Yeah, twenty four twenty minute episodes. Um, and I and I can see what it's trying to do, but I haven't been inclined to go and and binge watch it. I will see it through. I'm hoping I'll enjoy it in the long run, and you can come back in a few weeks and tell me that um, my initial trepidation was incorrect. So, yeah, that's what I've been watching. What about yourself? Okay. Uh, much like yourself, I've also caught another anime series on Netflix, and that's The Return of High School, high school Girl 2. Now, the original series of this uh, show... I'm really not too sure why I particularly stuck with it, and I think it's more to do with the fact that this show is not so much about this love triangle angle, but it's also about a, a love letter to 90s arcades, as the whole series is based around these three characters and their love of the arcades and video games. So the game is packed with footage from old school like 90s arcade games, like things like Street Fighter and Darksider, and uh, Fatal Fury and that's what I really love about the show is you get to see all these amazing old school games and they talk constantly about these games and it's just a real sort of nerdy fest and in particular we've got the almost a uh, mute girl who is the sort of love affection of this uh, of the game we've heard in the first series uh, Hero who's kind of like um, a little antsy he's a little quick to to temper and she in many ways this uh this almost mute girl Akira she's very sort of quiet quiet and she tends to pick all the characters that people don't like to play in the arcade so we see her playing with Zangief in Street Fighter 2 and she decimates everyone in the arcade she plays as Hagger in Fatal Fury and it's just uh really interesting the second series the fact that we're now seeing the first season again but this time from her perspective and we get to find out a little more why she is as she is but at the same time it's the story at times is a little frustrating how they're choosing to go but but the amount of old school arcade footage put into it is just sort of what's really keeping me hanging in there another anime that i watched as well is one that i picked up uh recently and that's the boy and the beast i'm not sure if you're familiar with that one Stephen. no not at all this is one uh, directed by uh maro hoshield um Hosoda, who also did Go Let Through Time and Wolf Children and Summer Wars. The film itself, uh, he's this young boy who basically runs away from home and ends up uh, in the Beast District where he 
ends up becoming an apprentice uh, to this uh, B Samurai. It's a real sort of fun sort of samurai mentor sort of storyline and there's some really nice animation there it's a shame that the story does did kind of lose me in the last hour when we see this see uh the young boy kyuta grow up and go off to go back to the human city and start exploring that his teenager style life but uh the first half of it's really fun and certainly the action and the training sequences in it are really fun as well and it's one I think we may return to at some point, just because I'm sure there's something more to discover there. But um, during these lockdown times, it probably wasn't the best time to be watching something so uh, so heavy. It felt like, but I did watch. Uh, thanks to my young son deciding to wake up at half one in the morning, I did also uh, get to scratch another one off the Shaw Brothers list, and that's um, Legendary Weapons of China from 1982, uh, which. I was promised is a traditional sort of kung fu movie. It's supposed to be this real sort of showcase of traditional kung fu, um, in particular showing the 18 weapons of Chinese kung fu, which again is a real appeal because I love use of weaponry in kung fu. What we get instead is uh, yes, we get some traditional kung fu in there, but we also get a healthy dose of kung fu weird as uh, <laughs> one of the special powers used by one of the sh- these. Uh, monks is the ability to make people control people like a voodoo doll and use them like marionettes and even use the power of ventriloquism it's one of those films where the fighty bits are really good and there's some fun comedic bits but the plot is really a bit of a confused mess which is kind of a shame really because the director of this uh, particular film Lu Cha Ling who I've talked about previously, also did Heroes of the West, which I found to be a much more fun film with its combination of um, Chinese Kung Fu versus Japanese fighting styles was just a lot more enjoyable. But the final multi-weapon showdown that we see here, I couldn't help but feel was like a big inspiration for the weapon room sequence from Crouching Tiger, Hill and Dragon. So it's um not the best Shaw Brothers movie out there but it's on Amazon Prime and uh it's worth checking out if you if you want a little bit of a little bit of uh I don't know it's it sort of straddles that line between being good and just awful uh, but it's <laughs> but there are people out there who absolutely adore this film so maybe I just uh I, maybe I was expecting something a little different but yeah the the comedic bits are pretty good, and as I said, the actual fighting sequences are really good as well, but it probably didn't help the fact we were watching this, and I was watching Once Upon a Time in China too, um, pretty back-to-back, and it makes a real sort of unfair comparison of uh, <laughs> films, to say the yeah, least. So. absolutely. Although you did, um, talking about the, the power of ventriloquism, it makes me think, uh, early... Um, Sort of early 50s, 60s Superman, he had the power of super ventriloquism. I'm sure that's that's not canon anymore. <laughs> it's obviously something people want to be able to do. I know, and I mean, this isn't the first time I've seen, you know, Kung Fu marionettes either, because if you remember a few episodes back when we were talking about Shaolin Drunkard, that had that uh, giant Kung Fu marionette as well as the Killer Frog and all those other weird things that... Uh, made that real sort of stand out for your kung fu weird and i mean i love it when kung fu goes weird especially when you look at films such as you know master of the flying guillotine where we've got that character who's kind of like uh del sim with the amazing long arms uh <laughs> and just the, as i said the flying guillotine itself i mean it's a bag that you throw people's heads and it decapitates them what more do you really want from your kung fu movie so 
Yeah. Well, you've got two Street Fighter references in already. I'm impressed. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> you know, like I said, it's here like thinking, oh, how can I work in Street Fighter references? Into the I didn't, show, I so. didn't realise that maybe we need a drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> the challenge is on now. <laughs> How many can Elwood get in? There's two so far. Will there be more? Obviously, at the moment, uh, if you're enjoying your lockdown still, depending on where you are in the world, the Korean Cultural Center in New York have got 10 Korean movies available to stream online, which you can find at koreanculture.org forward slash films forward slash movie at home. Um, and if you go on our Facebook page, you can find the full links on there as well. Uh, also this week, Gareth Edwards um, laid out his plans for how the Raid 3 would have gone down. You can find that on the Empire podcast. And again, if you go under empire.com, we, they've got the whole pretty much the whole transcript of how it would have laid out. And basically that uh, Iko Uwes, his sort of lead man drama, wouldn't have really featured in it at all. He sort of featured at the start and then he would have just been done as he pretty much proclaims at the end of the Raid 2. So... Um, would you want to still see the raid three, or do you think like the raid raid two pretty much sort of wrapped it up? I've got to be honest, I didn't really like raid two. Okay. I um, but I'm a huge fan of the first raid film. I feel a bit like that. I mean, I don't dislike raid two. It's just it's just not one of you know it's not a raid I absolutely love. Yeah, um, raid two I, I could live with live without. Um, I, I'm not sure I wanted a raid three. I, I don't. I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> Even though the film I discuss, we're discussing tonight is is one of the great sequels, I, I wish um I wish some of these people would um move on past their one success and try something else. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Does it sound good then? It's Three? an interesting plot. I mean, it was also looking just from what I remember really of it. There was uh, going to be a sort of more of a jungle setting. There was going to be a new sort of lead character introduced and we would have uh, basically seen him going up against the remaining members of the accuser gang that we saw in the second one I mean certainly at the moment Gareth Evans is uh, working on Gangs of London uh, which has just been released as a box set over here on Sky from what I hear it's just as violent as the raid so a lot of people have been very excited uh, to that respect but at the same time nobody's really made the connection that you know the guy who made the raid has also done this and I think also a lot of people forget that yes he's a Welsh director who makes films predominantly in Indonesia fair play to him is what I say I mean he's found he's found a market hasn't he where um he's like you know, a, a film industry work with, that he is able to work within, possibly due to finances. You know, and and you know, let's not let's not be around the bush. The Raid is a fantastic martial arts film, right? <laughs> um, and and really hit a hit hit a hit a fine seam of um, interest from people all over the world. Oh, for so, sure, and it really ushered not only gave us like that first introduction to Salat, but also. Ushered in this sort of era of ultra violent martial arts movies that have sort of followed in its wake, and we've seen things such as like, um, and obviously the raid, raid one and two, we we had these like a uh, influx of the these films, much kind of like the way that when Ong Bak came out, and suddenly we started seeing what else Tony Jaa had been and Co had been doing over there, and it sort of gave us that wave of films from there as well. So and gave us obviously things like Chocolate and. Um, uh, Venging Phoenix, I want to say. Oh, um, Raging Phoenix, wasn't it? Raging Phoenix, sorry. Yes, uh, all that. G. Jarjan. Is that her name? G. 
Jija or something or other. Yes. Yes, because the lean girl from mm. Chocolate. So. And she also made that 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 Taekwondo family as well. <laughs> hey ho. <laughs> okay. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk. Hello, Julie. What the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spots sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download this show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. Okay, tonight uh, we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in China 2. Uh, this is a pick from Stephen, and it's released obviously back in 1992, directed by Sue Hawk and starring Jet Li, as well as the first leading role from Donnie Yen. These we uh, once again follow the legacy, perhaps uh, as elaborate as it is with these films, of Wong Fei Hung. And uh, more importantly, we're actually joined tonight by a very special guest. We're joined uh, tonight by Jeanette Ward, um, who's uh, come on to obviously talk about the film. But before we obviously get into that, I mean, Jeanette, I mean, welcome to the show. And um, first off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, where find yourself on the net, so to speak? <laughs> well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Honored to be asked to be a guest. Um, yeah, I, I have a movie review blog that I maintain over at jwardadventures.blogspot.com. Just um, kind of came out of nowhere, just had a tendency to go to the movies every Friday and started writing it down and posting it. And so uh, very casual and certainly not. <laughs> My brother asked me when I started, well, why don't you try and you know do it for a paper or a legitimate publishing something? And I said, because then they would force me to see all the movies. And I only want to see the movies I have an interest in. And so that is why I always refer to myself as a non-professional critic. <laughs> because uh, I stick to my wheelhouse and I'm perfectly happy there. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I'm at. That's where it came from. And that's what I try to maintain. I try to post at least once a week. Uh, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Uh, you know, when you're in lockdown on account of viruses, it's, it's tough mm-hmm. to see as much new stuff as maybe I would regularly. But... Netflix has been stepping up the game, and so I've been watching as much as I can. And something that I have to obviously ask yourself, and some myself and Stephen have also been discussing with, obviously the cinema now being brought into people's homes. Do you mm-hmm. see that it's going to be reversed, and that they're going to take that away and just keep like the cinema releases as does the cinema, or do you think we're now going to see this option that they've talked about for many years, where you have the cinema release and the home release at the same time, but obviously at that more premium price? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that is really a fascinating question, and it's really going to be interesting to see towards the end of this year when people start to really get the the feedback on the numbers. You know, what what can can a film production company make the same amount of dollars releasing direct to a streaming service that they could have going to many multiple theaters? Um, for smaller, more independent movies, I feel like this has been a, a blessing. I think they're getting a wider reach than maybe they would have gotten had they had to fight. Um, with other large releases in theaters. I think with everyone releasing to streaming services, it kind of creates a, a weird balancing plane where everybody gets the same access um, and, and this can fight for the same margin in terms of audience. Um, it, I think it's going to hurt some of the bigger pictures because I really feel like your tentpole um, popcorn flicks do better with a crowd. I, I think the reason I like going to the movies for giant 
pictures like that is the experience of watching it with a group. So I don't think you're ever going to see a complete shift away from theater going experiences. But when people get a chance to review the movie, uh, the numbers in terms of movie releases for early this year, it's going to be very interesting to see how that gets incorporated. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, companies start to work into it. Yeah, we'll work it into theaters first, and then we're going to move to a streaming service faster based on whatever the results are after this. But yeah, it's, um, boy, I'd like to see the data at the end of this year <laughs> to see what kind of difference it makes. Yeah. I've yet to try any of the, like, the premium films have been out, like Invisible Man and The Hunt. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stephen, have you paid at the premium yet, or you just been cheap like myself? I haven't paid the premium, but I have seen The Invisible Man. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting statement that is. <laughs> um, I, I haven't yet, but if had... If they'd released like something I was really, really passionate about seeing on the date it was released, yeah, then I'd be more tempted to like Black Widow. I think was going to be the first one. Even the Bond release, I think I'd have been fine waiting until it. But when I the Invisible Man when they first shipped it, well, okay, yeah, you can see it's streaming. It was like nineteen ninety nine here, and for me, when I go to the theater, it's like eleven, twelve dollars. So that sudden seven dollar increase, I was like, wow, I can wait. I wasn't super pumped about that movie. If it comes to one where I was super excited about it, that might be where I start making that choice. But for right now, I have not paid the premiums. But I also have not seen Invisible Man. I mean, I, I guess we've talked about this before, Elwood, but the, the, I understand why the price point is what it is. You know, they're kind of assuming mm-hmm. that two of you would have gone to see the film and, and you know, the same. It's about £15 here, which is... It's a, it's it's a, it's it's about fifty percent more than maybe you'd pay to go to see. I had a big multiplex, a big a big new release. Um, but you know, none of the films that have come out, whether it be The Hunt, whether it be Visible Man, whether it be The Trolls: The Next Adventure, none mm. of those films are films which I was desperate to go and see. Some of those films they've brought forward um, in terms of their release, so uh, the Harley Quinn movie. The, Star Wars movie, they sort of they sort of pushed onto streaming a lot quicker. You know, they, mm-hmm. They've probably they've probably done their run in the cinema. Uh, that that's what I'm more interested in, and they certainly needed to drop down in price, uh, uh, you know, a big way. The cinema going experience, I think, is still something that people are going to want, and I suspect when we are all allowed back out into Gen Pop again, um, I'm expecting cinema viewing to actually go up. Mm-hmm. I think people will crave the the company of strangers, even though we may <laughs> even though we may have to sit in alternate seats or something like that. But I think I think some of those movies which are pausing the Bond movie, the Black Widow movie, like you've mentioned already, actually might do well out of it. The problem is some of those studios can't afford not to have a film out this year. Right. Yeah. And that's going to be the concern. What are we going to lose this year? Um, and and also, you know, even Netflix are going to struggle. Netflix have got these fantastic new audience figures, but they can't make any more new content. Right. And there's only so many times people are going to watch The Tiger King or, or anything <laughs> like that. There's going to be this huge gap for mm-hmm. six months, maybe longer, where nothing has been made or series haven't been finished. It reminds me of like, um, do you remember like all the writers' strikes and things which happened in the nineties? And there's a whole bunch of series which just died or had shortened seasons or, you know, that kind of thing. And it took a while for the whole world to 
and that that was just out of you know that was just an economic thing this is this is a little bit more fundamental so i wonder if we're gonna gonna see something like that maybe you know you, you could tie an end of a certain golden age of television to that writer's strike i do wonder if we're going to see the end of some kind of golden age which we might be going through now at mm. least a blip on the way but who knows one thing <laughs> i do think is is that people are going to start exploring more foreign stuff mm-hmm. um, Especially in the world of drama, so no, you know, you just see all these Korean dramas, Taiwanese mm-hmm. dramas. Loads of Spanish programming has appeared on Netflix in the UK. Mm-hmm. Loads of sort of TV shows, Spanish TV shows have turned up, and I guess that's where that's where that's where people are gonna, you know, if this goes on another six weeks, nine weeks, whatever it is. Um, I mean, I, I've been told from my work, you know, it could be February before I'm back at work properly again. Mm. Um, because just you know the new normal is, is is not going to be everyone going back to work in, in three weeks time so I, i'm going to need something to keep me entertained not while i'm working employer <laughs> you know but but in, in, in the evening in the evenings and at lunchtime and things like that the television has become incredibly important to me yeah that's an excellent point i feel like i have definitely watched a lot of movies and shows and things that i, w- I wouldn't have made the time for in a regular situation yeah, I mean, certainly Netflix at the moment, they're pushing forward with a whole bunch of new Asian uh, TV movies and TV shows. We've also got uh, Forest of Love, Deep Cut, coming up soon, which is really weird because they're advertising it with the trailer for Sono's Forest of Love, which I don't know if they're just remaking it as a TV show or what, but it's uh, it's kind of weird there. And we've obviously had Extra Curricular has had uh, release as of now as we've recorded this episode so i've been hearing from team member steph how excited she is for that so i mean it's good in the fact that people perhaps me will be pushing the boat out slightly i also kind of help but wonder are we going to start seeing all those projects that have been sitting in studio vaults because they mm. need to put out content so we look back at uh, cabin in the woods which was in the movie vaults for years and it's only off the success of four that the studio's like oh wait we've got this other movie with the, the four mm-hmm. guy and let's just dig that out um and obviously it went on to become the wonderful one-off film that it is as mm-hmm. much as it frustrates me every time i watch it because i want more and you obviously can't <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to obviously asian cinema i mean you said already you, you're sort of pushing the boat out there watching more sort of uh, foreign cinema did you have a lot of experience with like asian cinema or is it something you've sort of stepped in and out of yeah that, that's um <laughs> that's a great you know i've watched some i by yeah. no means would i consider myself to be um, well-versed in Asian cinema. It's not something I shy away from. I certainly watch it when uh, someone recommends it or when something catches my interest. Uh, when I was younger, I was <laughs> into a lot of uh, trashy American kung fu movies, martial arts movies um, that I think played off the huge success the Asian films had in Asia and a lot of, I think, American companies were like, hey, we know some martial artists. We could throw together a crap movie um and i feel like the american ninja series for example a lot of <laughs> cynthia rothrick pictures um a lot of that kind of stuff i watched a lot of that when i was younger and then when some of those would you know when you catch some of the behind the scenes i'd be like oh this is loosely based on and so occasionally i would track down 
original pictures like that. Or some of them had crossover bits where you would find a, a star who was already big in Hong Kong movies that would cross over. I know Robin Shu had a big career there before he made the one or two movies he made here. So things like that. Um, so I, I have some tangential contact with Asian cinema. I wouldn't say I am by any means an expert, but I am aware and I've seen some things. How about that? <laughs> That's fine. As I said, I felt that I knew a bit about Asian cinema until I started working with Stephen, and then it got oh so made clear what I hadn't seen. We, so. we just have different interests. That's all. <laughs> what I love is that there's there's so much out there, and what it takes is someone saying to you because, quite frankly, even at this point, you we just don't get a ton of it advertised, especially here, and I think. Again, that's going to be a side effect of this. It would be great to really open up the um, country lines in terms of cinema. And now that people are searching for content to really get the opportunity to see a lot of stuff that you miss because it's it's either not shown where you're at, where it's not advertised where you're at. Now people have the opportunity to search it out. So, And, and of great. course, we've got the parasite wave that we may that yep. we may we may um, we may be riding ride that um, for a while. No reason yeah. not to. You know, there's a there's a ton of South Korean films out there by Bong and by 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 a couple of others at Park and 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 um, oh, the other fella Kim Kim Ji Woo that mm-hmm. that that are all on these streaming services that it wouldn't be hard for for Netflix to put up on the on the front page or Amazon to put up on the front page or or whatever and and they're ready made two hour mm-hmm. movies um, from the guy that gave you Parasite, you know. Exactly. Um, that's which, all it's going to take. Mm, absolutely. Well, it took the success of Parasite for us to actually get Snowpiercer over here some... How many years later, do you think? It's... <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we, we, shall, we shall see. I think Korean cinema has the best chance because it has... Uh, it's very glossy. It's very yeah. modern. Um, some of those faces we will recognise. You know, there'll be... You know, there's there's a limited number of actors out there, and you'll recognise them from one film to the other. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, Korean culture in terms of the music, in terms mm-hmm. of drama, and things like that are really fairly embedded. Certainly in the American experience, you know, K drama is a big thing. K pop is yes. a massive thing. Yes. Um, it, it it has a, it has a much smaller hurdle to jump than maybe main, you know, mainland Chinese stuff ain't going to fly, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just it's just not going to fly. Um, Japanese cinema can be quite obstructive because it's it, it's it's mannered very differently whereas in a, a film set in seoul yeah it's it's very much like a film set in new york and it will um yeah i i, I think if they get it right it, it's a good thing i i think that's an interesting parallel like the the pervasiveness of k-pop across the globe might just open the doors for <laughs> the korean movies what a, what an interesting thing to think about. Someone should write up a dissertation on that and get a doctorate in it. There you go. The floor's open to you two because it's not going to happen <laughs> to myself, that's for sure. Oh, we could talk about the the, the the South Korean government have been trying to do this for 30 years. Um, this the, the parasite winning the Oscar is is the is the culmination of a huge investment in Korean culture, both across Asia, across Europe, and across the United States. And, and it's, it, it started with dramas, started with a certain number of films, but K-pop took over. And uh, and, and then Parasite, you know, they really put a lot of money behind making sure that Bong Joon-ho was, uh, Bong Joon-ho was, was in America for a good few months with his, with his funny translator and appearing in yep. all the late night shows. And, you know, it was... It, 
would like to tell you it was all a wonderfully organic experience, but it was absolutely stage managed and um, fair play to them. But this is this has been their plan for a long time. Nothing wrong with that, you know. I, if it works, it works. That's I, the reason K-pop is so widely palatable is because it's so structured, organized, and planned out. It, it, in, in, indeed, but first, first they'll get you with their TVs, then their phones, and then. Oh their my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of obviously the blending of East meets West, I think it's obviously time we talk about tonight's selection, which is Once Upon a Time in China 2. Uh, as we had already released in 1992, and following the ongoing adventures of Chinese martial arts master and folk hero Wang Fei Hong. Once again, here played by Jet Li, returning for his second of three uh, appearances in the saga. This time we four, see the four film. appearances. He comes Which, back. He, he comes back. He come in back, back in five. In six. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, he's in one, two, and three. Vincent yeah. in um. Oh, you're talking about once upon a time in China in America, aren't you? It, it's part of the. It's part of the series. I was going to say, what number is that one? The once upon a time in America. Once upon a time in China in America. It doesn't have a number, but it is part okay. six. So it's still got. It's got Jet Li comes back. Resmond Kwan is in it still. Um, it, it's very much. In a, it's equally as nonsense as the others <laughs> historically. <laughs> so it, it absolutely counts. But interestingly, on my Blu-ray set, which has got the first three on it, the, the Jet Li ones, it's hidden away as an extra feature. Oh, that's interesting. It's not. It's not actually properly advertised as being on the disc. Bizarrely. <laughs> <laughs> Probably with good reason. Anyone who's seen that one, so it's a bit low budget, it's alright. It's it's got it's got problems, mm. should we say, that um, perhaps don't sit so well with a with a current eye. It doesn't sit um, well with a Western eye, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, with this one, we. The film is uh, set in China in, in 1895 um, with Wang Fei Hong travelling with his romantic interest 13th aunt, along as well as his apprentice Lung Fun. And the trio arrive in Canton and find that basically there is a lot of chaos because at the moment the, the Europeans are moving in and bringing a lot of cultural uh, differences across. And at the same time, you've got the White Lotus sect who are going around basically attacking old Westerners and destroying anything that is not Chinese that they regard as alien culture. Including uh, burning Dalmatians, which, man, that was almost enough to make me stop right there. It was a bit, is, uh, a bit concerning when I watched it, that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. It's a bit weird. They, they got, they got like, like, like these um, grandfather clocks and other accruements of earlier 20th, 20th century he Western culture. He followers... Bring in the demon artifacts, and they show up with <laughs> clocks and books and things, and then a Dalmatian. And he goes, "Oh, what is that?" And I go, "It's a demon dog." It's he neither said, black nor white. Skin condition, burn it. And I was like, "You guys, I might be out." However, that's not the worst thing that happens to a dog in this film. But let's continue. Oh my god! Yeah, all right. So, <laughs> so for those of us who are not familiar with uh, the series, Wang Fei Hung, as we mentioned already, is the films are based on a real person. However, his antics in this film are greatly exaggerated, shall we say, uh, to say the least. So, if you're looking at this film expecting a historical document, I think <laughs> you may be slightly disappointed. Um, but certainly on a 
martial arts level, this film is held in very high regard, mainly in particular because it features a showdown between leading man Jet Li and Donnie Yen, who, as we mentioned already, was here making his first appearance in a leading role. Their final fight sequence at the end being marked out as one of the best in Hong Kong action cinema, and a film that we'd have to, uh, one that we'd have to wait until... Um, hero to actually see a rematch between the two martial arts masters mm-hmm. but gently um is once again really embodies his character who's this weird combination between an action hero and this sort of stoic doctor character who's always sort of caught up in these uh conflicts that are happening around as the times are sort of changing in in china in the 18th century and certainly with this film is really sort of a step up from the original Once Upon a Time in China 1 which was very problematic the the action perhaps didn't quite sync up as well and the plotting as well wasn't really there so this film was a real sort of stand up and it was only released a year after the original film because Hong Kong really doesn't waste any time when it comes to profiteering off a good film um, the film saw the return of Rosamund Kwan as 13 Vanti and as we mentioned already saw Jet Li returning as well um, so opening thoughts on this one I mean obviously Jeanette this is your first introduction to the films and um, and was this your sort of first Jet Li film or you've seen other films no, no. because yeah, it's I've, obviously I've films a, of the West right I've, I've seen a number of Jet Li films I think oh forgive me if I'm wrong was it uh, Lethal Weapon or whatever that yep. was kind of his introduction to um so i i would say that was probably the first i became aware of him but i certainly then saw i think it's both um i saw fearless i saw hero i think hero is one of my favorites and it's the use of color and the moments in that movie and again what i love and i you guys would know more than me but i feel like asian cinema in particular is so good at the nonverbal acting where what they are trained to convey via their eyes and their face as opposed to dialogue is so important and i think hero in particular is is beautiful like that and i really love that movie um so i i certainly am aware of jet Li. i think he's fantastic i think oh i also <laughs> what's the horrible uh, is it romeo must die yes <laughs> yes um, and I, there might be another one he did that was like hip-hop flavored i don't remember what the other one was but uh... yes so um, definitely have seen that. Uh, and prior to watching this, I uh, did some Wikipedia research to read the uh, plot of Once Upon a Time in Once Upon a Time in China One, so that I would be up on what's happening and where our characters were at the beginning of the story. Um, so much, so much in the plot description. Where I was just like, <laughs> "How long is this movie? It seems like it must be four and a half hours long to include everything that they mention in the Wikipedia rundown of the plot." <laughs> It is much longer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, you get that vibe when you start this. It, it's very much, and the tone is crazy because the whole bit of them at the beginning setting out via, first, it opens up with the White Lotus cult establishing how much of a cult they are, as we already talked about, them burning all the uh, demons. Uh, but then there's a whole sequence of them trampling um, Wong and his crew traveling on train to get to Canton. That train sequence feels like it's way too long, and I, I couldn't quite tell. Is this a broad comedy? <laughs> is this a drama? There's so much talk about how soup spills when riding on a train, but I'm not sure what the tone is supposed to be. 
That is very interesting. So, so what they're trying to do in that part is, so, I guess, I guess, you do lack a bit of knowledge about the characters if you haven't yes. seen the, haven't seen the first one. So obviously, Elwood's El explained about Wong, Wong Fei Hung being a sort of this, this kind of folk hero, and this this is his early days. He's a he's a doctor, mm-hmm. and a, and a, and a, and a martial arts expert. His <laughs> his father was one of the ten tigers of Canton. Um, you know, he's he's also a, 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 a folk hero in his in his own right. Um, you have um, you, and you have Thirteenth Arm, which mm-hmm. possibly demands some explanation, Elwood. <laughs> so she is the she's not his actual aunt. <laughs> she's she's um, she the daughter of his grandfather's best friend, but they were blood brothers, so they consider that to be an arm. Mm-hmm. Now, normally, when someone is in Chinese culture, you you hear people talking about I'm I'm the fourth son or the fifth son, mm-hmm. and that means literally I'm the fourth or fifth son. But sometimes <laughs> they, they they might say they're the fourteenth son because being the fourth son is is too far down the train. But if they make it fourteen, it sounds more interesting. And also, the number three is unlucky in Chinese culture. So it might be that she's the third, <laughs> the th- third sister, but she's called the thirteenth because three is unlucky. Ironically, thirteen is unlucky in in Western culture. But mm-hmm. so if you go to a Chinese, you know, uh, hotel or something, there's no, there's never a third floor. Yep. Uh, it's it's that kind of thing. So there might be a bit of that, but yeah, they obsessively call her thirteenth aunt. Although in the old DVDs I used to have, they used to call her peony. So some of the films. They've, they've changed their name completely because it's too complicated but don't worry there's no incest going on there's no blood relation stuff but that relationship <laughs> between her between her father and his grandfather is what's stopping him acting on those on that romantic um that romantic journey they, which, they which certainly have on. a connection there there was some chemistry there I, to be fair i didn't assume they were actually related i did assume it was a title yeah, so it's kind of, kind of complicated. I've never found an actual answer to it, and now she's this, 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 and she's totally made up for these films, and now she is now a character in other media that used to, in the Wong Fei Hung story. So Troy Hart, director, has and, and and writer has has kind of made this up. Our Foon is is his his um disciple is Thank that the you. right word? Yeah, student, but. In the first film, he's played by somebody else altogether. Oh, boy. <laughs> and it gets more complicated, because the bad guy <laughs> in the first film is in this film as another character altogether. And you will find, as you watch the films go along, his entourage gets bigger, and it gets a way more comic. But Arfoon is absolutely the comic relief in this, but it gets more comedic. You know, you get the buck-toothed guy and the fat guy. You know, a whole gang sort of goes up around him as the films goes on. But in this film, he is the comic relief. And, and yes. Quite a lot of that, that tonal. I mean, I would either talk about this a lot, but there's a, there's a, there could be huge tonal shifts in, mm-hmm. in, in, in these films, especially films from sort of the Chinese Hong Kong films, but also mainland Chinese films of this time, where something quite dark will happen, and then there'll be a fart joke. Yeah. And that's what you're, that's what you're seeing here. He's um, e- even in the in the c- conclusion, he's stooging it about. <laughs> 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 Stooging it about the perfect yeah, description. Yeah, um, 
But he's, I think he's really good, actually. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's better than the guy who plays it in the first film. And he's, um, you know, he adds, adds a bit of humanity because, you know, Wong Fei Hong is just, you know, this amazingly stoic, amazingly talented, although a bit naive about things. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he's probably too aspirational for the normal audience. God, isn't he amazing? Whereas <laughs> a Foon is, is a bit more like you or I. And, uh, although at times, Equally as talented, I think. As an early fight, yeah. he shows he can put it about. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, Thirteen Fan, she's unlikely to have been based on any of the four spouses that Wang Fei Hong had over his life. Uh, three of those wives died during marriage to to him, uh, with the fourth uh, wife, uh, Mok Kwai Lam, out uh, living him. Now, for, from what many people sort of specified that she's not actually based on these and when we look at the character of 13 Fant um, she's basically more in tune with European culture the fact that she went over to Britain to be educated and she lived there for three years so she comes back and she wears like western clothes and she's viewed by many of the characters in the films as being the same as these these other westerners that have come over and they start bringing over all their sort of traditions and culture over which obviously really sort of makes her the target of like the white lotus sect who as you, you said already Jeanette they're an interesting bunch to say the least when they're not burning things they're basically putting the shell into shame with their tests of uh devotion as mm-hmm. we see with their head priest inviting his members to shoot him Yep. To prove that his skin is tough enough to not only withstand blades but bullets as well. That's, and that's after his uh, some of his associates have already um, eaten lit incense to prove that they can do that. They're, they're, um, they're hardcore. They're they are hardcore. <laughs> Which I always wondered, like when it came to like the Shaolin monks, how they like what the training is for, like pouring hot lead into your mouth and all these incredible feats. It's sort of like I'm. Just really want to know what the build-up to is, because I don't assume that you just go in and it's like, oh, today we're doing the breaking iron bars on each other day. Or <laughs> so I really just want. To... It's a shame that the White Lotus sect aren't sort of further explored, like what their sort of deal is. I mean, we see that they're a very devoted bunch and what their ideals are. It's very sort of clearly laid out. And the White Lotus have appeared in numerous other kung fu movies as well. Um, they're also the clan that Pai Mei belongs to, who fans of Kill Bill will obviously remember as the martial arts master who trades the bride. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tarantino obviously took uh, the inspiration from Clan of the White Sect, um, Clan of the White Lotus, sorry, um, as the inspiration for that character. And um, to cross over with one of your other podcasts, mate, um, Raiden from Mortal Kombat is a member of the White Lotus Clan. I was going to ask. Now? I was going to ask which one because he is indeed. That they were a real thing. They mm-hmm. weren't this. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they were. I mean, Ch- China at this time, you know, this this, this does have sort of historical reality china at this time Qing dynasty emperor dowager all that kind of thing um the bit and there's a bit at the beginning where they talk about seeding taiwan mm-hmm. yeah quite quite early on so this is happening china is giving up the the the, the imperial dynasty is 
is rotten to the core. It's giving up. It's ceding land to the Europeans. Um, although, interestingly, I think the discussion in the beginning of the film is, you know, the locals say, we don't know where Taiwan is. What does that mean? Right, you know, yeah. Because so they, they, this, this is in Guadong, this is in, in South China, which is very available to, to the Europeans. So these cities, you know, lot, they, the cities like um, Guangdong, like, um, like Shanghai, were getting, you know, basically split up and given off to the Europeans, yeah? And so can I just... This, that, I... That part of this movie, I was like, this is so interesting because I know um, two years ago I was in China and we toured Shanghai. And the part that really struck me was how internationally uh, Shanghai is so international. Mm. And it's because when it first started opening up, all these different cultures came in. And so there are different pieces of the city that have French architecture, they have German architecture, they have Scandinavian architecture, they have all, all these different places that came up because it was so international and it was like that for a certain number of years and then very promptly shut down and closed up again. It was. So, so Shanghai, Shanghai is a particular example because of its trading post. This, 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 of course, remember this is the time of the, uh, just after the Opium Wars. So China mm. basically lost a lot. Um, it, as, as an imperial power, it was shrinking. The, the Japan was rising elsewhere. Um, Russia is about to come down and invade in a while. Um, so, so, the 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 sort of the, the the European nations, the Portuguese, the British, the Germans, and to some degree the Americans, were, were taking over, and this was creating a this is this is very potted history, but this was creating a, a nationalist movement, which is what you're seeing in this film and in Guadong. Mm-hmm. It would be especially important because that was a really easy place for people to get to. It's two hours from Hong Kong. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it it's it, it's the first place you hit when you when you travel from Europe in, into China. Um, so this nationalist fervor and and is, is is very much a real thing. And this is you know later on when we meet a character, Dr. Sun Yat, who who was a real guy. You may have heard of a fellow called Mao. Who, who also was part of this 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 nationalist um, uh, thing? So, so they they very quickly went from imperial to a to a, a federal republic to a communist state, um, and it was all because the Chinese people thought, "Hang on a minute, all these all these um, all these guaylos, all these white people are coming and, and and taking over." So this this film is actually quite accurate in what it's. I mean, there weren't these cults of super ability <laughs> bulletproof, uh, bulletproof yeah monks. and and they probably weren't burning dalmatian dogs but they <laughs> and certainly the white lotus cult wasn't doing this but they were you know this is this is very much the feeling of the time and and this film does have although it's nonsense there is absolutely a deep cut of reality about this and and all the once upon a time in um, china films and then later on, I guess the Ip Man films as well are mm-hmm. feeding on this sort of sort of reverse xenophobia, if you like. Um, you know, China, this this you know, China went from being this super super state to being the plaything of the Europeans, of the Japanese, of the Russians, um, which, which then led to the the revolution or the two revolutions, which they happen to have in in short in short succession so there is a lot here and if you want to go off and do a deep dive into wikipedia you will find out some really interesting sort of modern 20th century history stuff going on here um which this film this film is playing with and creating a a new narrative around it using as a backdrop indeed 
but, yeah. but you know, there are real people in there. Wong Fei Hong was a real person. Doctor Sanya was a real person. Um, so thirteenth uh, aren't not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so with obviously this great political climate that this film takes place in, with obviously obviously the White, White Lotus, and we've obviously got the um, underground rebellion that's also there's murmurs of within the film and. Where do we think, obviously, Wong Kui Hong sort of stands in this? I mean, is he just sort of like a bystander to this historical event that's happening, or do you think that he really sort of had a side with this, um, with any of the parties that are obviously happening here? Because obviously, at the moment, we've always got the the Qing government who are sort of controlling things, and we obviously find out later that one of his friends is part of a revolution to try and overthrow that government and. We obviously uh, at the same time as well. You've also got the uh, White Lotus who are going about things their own way of uh, of how they choose to deal with the Europeans. For myself, I mean, one very young felt like kind of like a bystander and just sort of like this force of uh, orders just constantly trying to do the white thing as each situation presents itself. But did either you feel that he had a, like a particular political standing in this fight? No, I I don't think if he did, it wasn't clarified he seemed to just be as you mentioned a a genuinely good guy kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and so simply trying to do what he could happen happening to find himself there he didn't if he had a a goal or an aim or a political leaning it didn't seem to be the forefront of his operation no very much not he's you know he's he's a he's a guy interested you know his martial arts he's 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 his skills as a doctor, as an acupuncturist, um, are what he is interested in. Obviously, in the previous film, the the, the introduction of Thirteenth Aunt into his life with her very overseas Chinese kind of attitude, and you know, she wears the Western clothes. You know, she's she's part of. You know, he obviously has a huge crush on her, um, and, and and she's part of his life. So he's he's opening up to a more uh, bigger world view, but he is not he is not a he's not an agent in this in what's going on here he seems equally as shocked by the the violence and the uprising as um as anybody is really and he's he's only gets involved because people he knows gets involved and people Mm -hmm. he knows are getting hurt by you know he's a he's he's reactionary towards it but i don't think he's he's an agent for or against it although he ends up very much being that due to his actions which he has to take Mm And we obviously see that scene where the British consulate is turned into an almost kind of field hospital, and he seems almost fascinated with the blending of traditional Chinese herbalism and acupuncture with Western medicine, as we see him. Uh, he sees another Chinese doctor using a stethoscope and uh, obviously using syringes, and it seems to be generally fascinating to him the what's happening in terms of Western medicine there. So it seems like a real acceptance on his part to accept changes and influences from the West, that he's not sort of on the stance of just that, you know, we must sort of like repel any influence from the, from these uh, Western invaders, so to speak. Yeah. And I guess what we have to understand is that the director and writer Choi Hart was Vietnamese uh, and, and and actually schooled in America. I think he I think he was schooled in New York. Um, he's a he's a he's a he's a man of the world. He's not a, he's not a Chinese nationalist like maybe 
Jackie Chan or someone like that might be. Um, <laughs> did you have to pronounce it like that? Or? I, I, I did because I was saying it through gritted teeth, you know, because okay. he, he, he's, he's very much pro China, pro mainland China, and he's a mouthpiece of the CCCP. Well, um, he certainly didn't do himself to, to warm himself to anyone with his comments on the protests that, that were happening over uh, there for uh, sure. Uh, Absolutely, and, and certain others as well. People like Chow Yun-Fat have been equally um, damaged by some of the statements they've made. But, you know, Choi Hark is not Chinese. He is, you know, he's, 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 he's Southeast Asian for sure, but he's coming, he's coming out probably more as a Hong Konger than anything else, mm. who are, who are much more, um, that, that they look much more towards the West than they do to, um, well, certain generations look much more to the west than they do to to the mainland so this you've got to remember this film is is being viewed through a lens of somebody it'd be quite different if if a different director was behind this um i guess we look at the it man films don't we where where it's very much china 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 you know it's it's look at those horrible british people look at those horrible japanese people look at those horrible americans you know as as the films go on um (laughs) Whereas, whereas this is, look at the craziness going on. Yeah. Wong Fei Hung here is, is, is a man caught up in events. And whilst he eventually gets involved in that fight for nationalism, I don't feel it's a political decision for him. It's more, it's more about just trying to do what's right, trying to bring order maybe rather than to bring revolution. Absolutely. You can disagree. But... No, I'm going to agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, obviously, the one of the big draws of uh, this particular film is the aforementioned showdown between Jet Li and Donnie Yen. Donnie Yen, as we mentioned numerous times already, uh, wasn't quite the action superstar that he is now. And I think it's only recently that he sort of come more to the forefront really and it seems like a very long time coming as which i'm sure a lot of people who are sort of fans of hong kong action cinema will probably agree i mean i don't know about yourself Steve, where you sort of stand on don yen but he's sort of uh it now that gently sort of has sort of stepped down from his his sort of like action role it seems that don yen's now been the guy to sort of step up but it feels that it's taken a lot longer than it should have for him to sort of get that recognition especially when you look back to those sort of early days when making films the west with like blade 2 i would have thought that he would have been picked up a lot sooner for his uh, skills than than he has obviously been it's kind of interesting because actually in age terms they're not too far apart um, yeah. Jet Li's not much older than Donnie Yen, but Jet Li comes from that. You know, Jet Li did his apprenticeship in in you know in in I don't know, he didn't do it in 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 the opera schools, but you know he did it the right way. He did it you know through wushu through 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 through, through his martial arts. Donnie Yen has done the same thing, but he's kind of done it in a, in a completely different way. And I think a lot of the audiences, the local audiences for sure, didn't accept Donnie Yen. I mean, you say this is his first leading role. Actually, in terms of minutes, at this point, he'd been in way more films than Jet Li. <laughs> um, but you're right, he hadn't stepped up. He, you know, his, his skills are undoubted. Yeah. And, and now he's absolutely viewed as, you know, one of the great action directors, action choreographers, and actually a star. You know, people know about him. He was the best thing about Rogue One, yeah, mm-hmm. by by a long distance. No, no, um, the, the best thing about Rogue One was the five-minute hallway sequence where Vader finally Vader's. True, that's second, true. In second of, best. In terms of characters, 
yes. you know, the, the new characters to that, you know, and, and so now he's, he is, he is a face that is recognized, but it's, it's even, even at home, even, well, I'm not, I think he's Chinese as well. I think he's a Hong Konger by, by, I can't remember, but you know, it, within that, that, that sphere, he was not very well regarded, um, because he was a little cocky git, right? Ah. And I was very overly, I was, I was watching the, um, I was watching the film today with the uh, direct, well, not the director, but the commentary on by some people who were actually involved in Hong Kong film at the time, and they basically said that he was a cocky little git, but it was only because he was absolutely confident, but he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, and so there's obviously there's a, there's a Confucian society, you know, you look up to your elders, you look up, so although him and, and Jet Li are of age, or of a similar age, Jet Li's done the, done the hard yards, and, and it, all, it felt like um, Donnie Yen had had taken shortcuts here, and and he wasn't giving me the respect. And also, you know, Jet Li's not to be forgiven. Did you know, for example, they stopped work. Jet Li and Choi Hark and um, who's the guy who owns Golden Harvest? I can't remember his name. That the owner, Raymond Chow. Yeah, right. Raymond Chow. All fell out before this film was um, finished. They had a whole bunch of stuff to do. All the stuff in the British Embassy hadn't been filmed yet, and they all got together pretty much a week before it was due for release and did it all and got it all sorted so it could be ready for a midnight showing a week later um wow. so, so, so jet lee was a bit of a dick as well I, I can't remember what they fell out over but you know but back to your question elwood is that, that donnie yen absolutely has had to seem to have taken a much longer journey to get the respect that his obvious ta- i mean I'm I'm not an expert in martial arts, but the guy looks absolutely amazing in this. And, He's phenomenal. And Jet Li's the one with two stunt doubles, not <laughs> Donnie Yen. <laughs> um, That's interesting. So so. It feels yeah. like, and I haven't seen, I haven't seen it, you know, as wide a repertoire from either of them as as you guys have. But Jet Li seems to. Maintain this more studious, scholarly kind of mentality. It feels a little bit like Donnie Yen has embraced his uh, sexuality a little bit more. Like a lot of his uh, photo shoots roles, he kind of is like, "Yeah, I'm sexy." He feels a little bit more like, "Yeah, yeah, take a look." Has outrageous self confidence. He also was a terrible actor. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 there was a you know, you know, in a Don Donnie, you know, he, he'd overacted Gurnet, um, the the. The, the, you know, his, his martial arts was never in doubt, but maybe his other other acting skills weren't as good. You know, D- D- Jet Li's got a certain quiet charisma about him. Yes. Um, yeah. Cao Yun Fat has this 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 style and glamour around him. He does. Jackie Chan has this this Comedy. sense of humour and a, yep. and a sparkle in his eye. Um, yep. Don, Donnie Yen is just this arrogant little git. And, he, and it's so interesting that you mentioned Blade too. There's there, that's yeah. the first time I saw him. There's a whole sequence where he simply stands there and points for an extended amount of time just so you yeah. can look at him. And but much more recently, he appeared in a series of so the Ip Man films were the, were the first example of this. And then um, how do you say uh, Edward Dragon, the one he did with Takashi Kaneshiro? Uh, Dagon. Yeah, he's he's yeah Dagon. That's it. Or um, I can't remember what oh, it was called. Uh, Wuxia in in the copy I've got, but he's magnificent in that because suddenly he, he calmed it down a bit. He played a couple of roles of characters almost like Wong Fei Hung in a way oh. that um that 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 are much 
calmer, much more studied, much more methodical. And whilst he was still able to do his 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 the the, the martial arts side of things, he was able to rein in his his uber confidence and his personality. And you know, you, you've got to look at this. Was it ninety two, Edward? Ninety one, ninety two. Ninety two for this yeah, one, yeah. Yeah. The the Donnie Yen from ninety two and the Donnie Yen from say twenty twelve are different people they look mm. exactly the same and boy <laughs> they look know, exactly the same. <laughs> he hasn't aged nope. com- yeah and compared to compared to jet lee who's clearly on the just for men um uh. <laughs> <laughs> but but he, he he as a as a person and as a personality he has improved out of all sight and now you know i i would go and watch a film on the basis that donnie yen is in it whereas maybe i wouldn't have done 10 years ago huh. yeah donnie yen's i think it's got the same sort of breeding that adam scott has where they just seem to reach an age and then stopped aging yes so uh whether there's a bunch of clones or they've just been packed away in tupperware i really don't know but uh yeah donnie yen has never sort of lost a step and, and he's one of those few martial artists who's also adapted his style to match with more modern cinema as we've seen when you look at films such as like Flashpoint and SPL where he's bringing a more UFC style of mixed martial arts to his fight sequences where the actors who came before him such as like Jackie Chan and Jet Li always maintained a more traditional sort of martial arts style mm-hmm. that really sort of was fine for the time and but when we're going into like the 2000s and you've got things such as like uh, UFC and mixed martial arts and you've also got films like uh, The Raid and Ong Bak coming out and audiences just weren't satisfied with the traditional sort of style and he's been one of the few actors mainly because the amount of fight styles that he's mastered over the years has been able to sort of adapt more and I think that's really sort of it's really sort of helped him really as he's now making more films in the West such as films like The Return of Xander Cage which was horrible (laughs) (laughs) so while he's obviously making more films in the West I just wish he would make better films in the West Um, but no certainly when you look at his his films and this film in particular it's just a real sort of standout performance here Um, right from when he's sort of first introduced and we see him using the rope staff yeah or the cloth staff, uh, depending on who you talk to, which is a little bit of, you know, kung fu weird, uh, in the fact that you've got this piece of cloth that's now being bound so tight that you can, like, swing it around and use it as a staff. Mm-hmm. But it really gives that real great foreshadowing to the final showdown we have at the end where again it's uh donnie yen versus jet lee lee showing off his skills with the pole and uh yen obviously showing off his skills with this uh rope uh rope staff which is just such a phenomenal fight sequence and even like throws in that really awesome sort of payoff scene where he has his sort of throat slashed and he doesn't realise it until he walks away and then we have that wonderful puff of uh, blood that uh, pops out there, which is surprisingly violent for these <laughs> films, I have to say, and felt more sort of akin to, like, the Baby Cart and Peril films than, uh, the, than the Once Upon a Time in China movies, but... Yeah, it's kind yeah. of weird, that, isn't it? There's a couple of weird CGI moments. There's 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 the fire that they... they in the, in the scene previous when he's taken on the... Um... Jet Li takes on the entire White Lotus clan and there's there's some CGI fire that people get done by and then there's the the, the throat <laughs> spurt 
where, where, where he's got the, the double-edged knife, isn't he? He gets Donnie Yen's throat, and then this this weird CGI splurt of like you're quite right, just like those 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 Japanese movies, you know, those um those samurai movies where where the blood just spurts out crazily, and he just, <laughs> but then he just slumps down. But yeah, that's again that's that's Choi Hark for you. Choi Hark's never never shy of a um of a trick. Well, where, that's where the when he had that uh, rope flip, I was so expecting like the line from uh, Baby Cut the River Sticks, where it's sort of like they say that if uh, a slash across the throat it makes it sound like the wailing wind, and I always longed to hear that sound. Never did I think it would be for my own neck. And that's <laughs> that's he spends the longest time just standing there. You think he's going to give some big payoff line, but he just stands there looking so confused as to what's happened to him, and then just keels over. But it's a really phenomenal fight sequence, and I think the when you're looking at the fight scenes that Jet Li's put in over his years, I mean, obviously, Fearless comes to mind, and uh, Fist of Legends as well, which also had that phenomenal 45-minute fight sequence at the end. Mm-hmm. Those, are, it's just a really sort of phenomenal sequence, and it only makes that rematch when we see in uh, Zhang Zemo's hero sort of stand out all the more. And even though it was that sort of like that more art house um, sort of style that we saw like first really introduced with like Crouching Tiger and Dragon and then Zhang Zemo just basically took it to a whole new level really um, so you know obviously, well, I really want to ask you both really I mean when you look at this film do you feel it's sort of that middle ground before between like the Shaw Brothers sort of Kung Fu movies and then the art house Kung Fu movies that we saw in sort of the late 2000 in sort of like the early 2000s with as with Crouching Tiger and Dragon, New mm-hmm. Dragon Gate in, and obviously uh, Hero and House of Flying Daggers. I think this is. I mean, this is the second Joy Hark film I've brought to the table, isn't it? In the in our in our long and storied episode of pod, uh, series of podcasts, um, this is to me. This is this is about Joy Hark. This is about Jet Li. This is about just this perfect melding of um, two people at the top of their game mm-hmm. aided by not just Donnie Yen Rosamund Quad. also let's not forget the action choreography you know Yoon Wu Ping who was who was right. uh, Donnie Yen's you know that, that he's the guy who brought Donnie Yen into cinema so that's possibly why um uh, that's why, why why he is so good in this film because he's got his he's got his master here sort of calling the shots action wise I think absolutely, but I think this is almost like a last hurrah. This series, maybe ending, with, you know, with, with number three to a degree, is is the last time you get those kind of grand martial arts films with a historical bent. Like, I mean, they they still make them. Eddie Peng was in a Wong uh, a Wong Fu Hung film a couple of years ago, but they're not the same. And and you're right, you know, what what came next was. You know, only those indie people were, or, or, or the art house crowd were interested in making it. So whether it was Ang Lee or whether it was um, anyone else, you, you didn't get these sort of big budget films, historical martial arts films, aching back to a day from from whatever happened with the Shaw Brothers and, and various other studios. It's, it don't know, I just feel it's its own thing, but I see what you're saying. It, it is like this. This, the, the, these transition. films, they they are transitional films that almost sit on their own, and they're genius. Mm-hmm. You have to view them through a slightly different lens in terms of the historical accuracy. I mean, 
no Shaw Brothers film is historically accurate either, right? <laughs> in any of the, you know, their martial arts films, their comedies, their their jack bashing films, their um their horror films, they're all pretty ridiculous <laughs> to, to varying degrees. But I just I don't know. I just I just thought this, this, and it's also part of that golden age of Hong Kong cinema as well, isn't it? It's it's that that, that early nineties. There were stars everywhere. There were the stars from the past as well. You know, this film's littered with people from from Shaw Brothers movies, um, who, who who used to be the action heroes and now are more elder statesmen. And I do wonder, yen aside, um, they don't exist anymore. There isn't a new generation in the same way that have that mass appeal. There is no new. You know, there's, there's a lot of great actors, but where is the new Jackie Chan? Where is the new Donnie Yen? Where is the new Jet Li? Cause as is far as is I, Daniel he, Wu not on your radar in terms of... I know he but, hasn't done as many. That Daniel Wu isn't a martial artist. Daniel Wu is a... Not in the way that, that, that those not, guys... Not in the way that the other guys are, yes. No, no, absolutely. Da- Daniel Wu is a fantastic actor. He's been in some weird old films, but he's, he's obviously broken off he's into the Badlands, doesn't he? He's, he's, got, he's got his own show, show in the West. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's not from that, that, um, that, that, that group of people. The Sammo Huns, the, the Jet Lees, the, the yeah. Jackie Chats. He's, he's, he's from an acting background who happens to... Eddie Peng's another one who probably hasn't made it out in the West yet, but he probably will. Um, another incredibly handsome Taiwanese actor. Um, very talented, very pretty, and does martial arts films. But can he really do it? I don't right, think so. Right, right. The he, ones he, he could beat me up. He could beat me up, but that, you know, he's, <laughs> he's not... Um, He's not. He's not from that. You know, from the from the from the Peking Opera or from 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 competitive um, martial arts. You know, he's 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 from an he's from well, he's from being a pretty boy, really. But uh, <laughs> but you, but that's that's what we have now in Hong Kong, and that's what we have in mainland China. We we don't mm-hmm. have these, these real fish and and things like CGI and special effects and, right. and camera have taken the. I've taken that away, I think. I mean, I was probably going to tell me 15 films now that from the last five years that, that show me wrong, but uh, I, I just don't think those stars exist anymore. Um, I think it's also the fact that Hong Kong's no longer set up to create the same sort of action heroes it was back in this sort of period. I mean, here we're obviously looking at a time when like Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest in particular were on at a real sort of high point and with generating these sort of stars that that they had. I mean, you mentioned already, you've got people like Jackie Chan, you've got Jet, Jet Li, you've got Samuel Hung, you've got Chow Yun-Fat. You've even, we got, uh, like, the female martial arts masters like Michelle Yeoh and Maggie Q. We just don't seem to have the same sort of industry that uh, with Hong Kong cinema that we had before, and maybe it's because the focus has now been moved over to Korea, um, where mm. we're not paying so much attention to who's coming out the same way that we were when these films were obviously coming up and gaining this sort of cool... Um, appeal and it, that in turn was sort of like really sort of helping to boost who the and establish who these sort of stars were just by the sort of films that were coming over and it at the time really in especially when I was sort of getting into these sort of movies and this was like mid 90s it was all like you know heroic bloodshed and kung fu movies so this is why you have people like Jackie Chan, Summer Hung and um, 
Jerry. In fact, these guys who were just like making these movies are the ones that are sort of coming to the forefront, really. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I agree with yourself, Stephen. The fact that it's also a different industry. We're now no longer focused on doing wire foo and traditional sort of kung fu. We do everything with CGIs and as cheap and as quick as possible. And I think that not just in in terms of Hong Kong filmmaking, but in filmmaking as a whole, I think has really been detrimental. And when you look at the directors out there still doing it the old school way, so like Guillermo del Toro, who's other using practical effects, uh, like Quentin Tarantino still shooting on film these uh, people are sort of maintaining the old traditional methods and you can see why people just gravitate towards these films and they're so ecstatic about about these films and the students are like oh why are we why can we not replicate it and it's because you're cutting down directors production times so that they're trying to do things as quick as possible and that's why we have like cgi squibs now instead of you know proper blood effects and mm -hmm. it's all about that turnaround time because if you're doing those sort of sequences it's like a six hour setup for like a 15 second shot and directors don't have the time and that's why they rather do like cgi blood effects and cgi fire and it all looks so bloody awful and of course, you know, you're absolutely right. And this, this is absolutely in this, in this, in this, in this moment of um, sort of the pre-97, let's say pre-2000, pre-Hattendover, this, this golden age of, of cinema where Hong Kong at this time was pumping out something like 300 films every year. Yeah? These films would, you know, we, we joke this, this, this film came like 11 months after the, the, the first one was released and they had time to all fall out with each other and not work for a while. These just, you know, now, it's not quite true that they made everything up on the day of the shoot, right? They're, 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 these, these, especially those set pieces, were pretty much planned out by um, by the action choreography um, people, and and it was pretty practiced. Although you know some of it was, um, you know, Im improvised, but but you can't do stuff like that and be improvised. Otherwise, someone's going to die. But a lot of it's just made up on the fly, and that industry just doesn't exist anymore. Every film. Is going to cost, you know, the, the 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 film industry even over in China has become unionized. So the reason people like Choi Hart when he went over to the States couldn't couldn't work was, well, I'm used to, you know, when when I want to make a film, I'll lug that box over there just to get us mm -hmm. ready for the next setup. In America, you can't do that. Right. You know, the the unions will get involved and they'll all go and strike for two days. So so as you say, a 15 second shot is going to take a whole day of shooting. The Hong Kong the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, you know, from 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 the 60s to to the, say let's say to 1997, was very much you know make do and let's try and do the best we can and and that's where you get some of the wacky stuff. You know, Elle was talking earlier about a film he'd watched and you know and there's some wacky old shit going on, but that's just I expect they had a marionette thing available or something like that from another film and they'll just use it or they had a funny idea you know the Stephen Chow comedy films you know, clearly a lot of that's made up on the fly and improvised yeah. but it's so much and, more efficient too because they can oh let's try this and then everyone there can contribute do something like you said move move a box which yeah it's just more efficient it, yeah. it, it is but also films in the west are events yeah yeah yeah, yeah, they cost millions. So they have to make back means. Even a film, you know, which you think is a budget film, a low budget film, probably still costs fifteen million dollars. Yeah, right. They've never spent fifteen million dollars on a film in 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 Hong Kong ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and in that regard, you know, and and they've got a limited audience. Um, so they have they have the wider 
diaspora of, of you know people in in Singapore, in other, other Cantonese speaking places, Malaysia, Singapore, places like that, um, and, and a little bit in, in mainland China. Um, but um, so I just lost a train of thought there. But um, <laughs> you know they they didn't cost as much to make. They were made very quickly, and the audience was you know trapped there. That that was an audience for them. And then they'd forget about that film. These films, you know, we're not really meant to go back and look at these films again. They're meant to be the ultimate in pop art. Yeah, they're just they're just to be consumed this weekend and they're not meant to have any longevity. And that's why a film like this, which clearly has got so much more going on. It, and Joy Hark's films, as a rule, are are event films, are bigger and and and. and almost modern in that regard. So even though this was made in 92, I think it's got more production quality than pretty much anything coming out in Hong Kong in the last 10 years. I, I, I don't know if you agree or would, but that, that's what it feels like to me. You also have to consider that when we compare like Western filmmaking to Chinese filmmaking, Chinese filmmaking is a 14-hour day. A Western film is a six-hour day. This is mm. why when you have these directors go over and like John Woo wants to go over and do like face-off and it's like, yeah... You know, John Travolta's not going to stay on set for 14 hours <laughs> as much as you want to like churn these things out, and that's probably also why they got these films turned around so quick. Oh, um, yeah, and, and they're making you know, each actor I don't know how many films Jet Lee made in 1992, but I bet it wasn't one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 no, we and we know you know, slightly earlier on, you know, in Shaw Brothers' days, an actor will be acting in three films at the same time, just go to a different, just go to a different set or reuse the sets. You know, the yeah. set half the sets for this film are from um, from a TV series that was made. You know, it's 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 a way more reuse, a, re, a way more um, uh, the, the the assets that they have, both physical and actors, and 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 the, and, and the talent working behind the camera, were just in use, as you say, fourteen hours a day, but maybe on three films at the same time, and that that doesn't exist anymore. Um, rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying it was a good thing because lots of people got hurt and died, and <laughs> and, and 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 obviously there's another thing we're not talking about. You know, the, the, there's a lot of crime money behind the scenes. On um on the, on these films, you know the the, uh, the triads are very much involved, so people were forced to to work <laughs> work at these rates in case there was a in case there was an issue. But um yeah, I I I, I don't know. I just, I just feel this is this is this is the last hurrah for this kind of film. It, you know, when you this one from 1992, I watching this without knowing what year it was made, and then. <laughs> Going back and checking, I, you could have told me it was 1982, maybe even 1972, and I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. It, it, whether that's a credit to the production value and it looks like it was legitimately 1895, or that's a detriment to the finish, I tell the you what's interesting. <laughs> I, I watched. I, I, I cracked open my Blu-ray, which was released a couple of years ago. They, they did a, a, a Eureka did a Blu-ray set, mm-hmm. and my old set. They were, fu- you know, absolutely. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, my, my old fuzzy DVD set. They, I couldn't, you know, it doesn't look good. My God, it scrubs up because it's made on film. You can, you can, you know, you can get a nice new high def version of it, and it looks amazing. Oh. Um, it looks much more. Well, yeah, maybe doesn't look like it was made. You know, it hasn't hasn't got. It's got it's got like a sepia tone filter on it for one, hasn't it? It doesn't, and everything's not blue blue toned like modern films are. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it it 
it it really does it's scrubbed up so well i don't know if they put special care over it because it's such a special film but um it, it, I, 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 I'd go, the, I'd go the other way, and I think, I think it could look like it was made in, let's say, two thousand and two, twenty ten, almost. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was have to ask you tonight. Um, when it obviously compares the, the action scenes we see in this film compared to what we see in like more modern cinema, um, how did you find the action sequences? Obviously, the fact that here we go for longer cuts, we haven't just got quick flashes and everything shot in super close up because. Here we have actual performance you can yes. perform. This is, uh, ironically, I feel like I'm going to repeat something I said on a podcast earlier today. Um, I was on the Lambcast and we talked about Extraction. I don't know if either of you have had a chance to watch Extraction yet on Netflix, the Hemsworth um, vehicle. But it's another movie in this wave of stunt coordinators shifting to directors where they come out yep. with their own pieces. And it's so invigorating to see a movie where you have uh, leads who are number one capable of doing the action required number two martial artists number three a director who understands how those fights need to be shot and it's it's something that um the commentary ironically from blade two if you watch the commentary and it has goyer um eye roll but it's also wesley snipes and snipes mentioned something that i've never forgotten in that when you're shooting an action sequence back the camera up watch it in a master film the entire fight if it's a hand-to-hand combat and you have stunt people who are capable of doing it and actors who are capable of doing it no cuts back the camera up let us watch the whole thing and it makes such a difference when you can see the fight sequence as opposed to having either a thousand cuts in the sequence or the camera too close and you miss you miss the beauty of the choreography and the choreography is important in movies like this. And it's, it's so, I, I love a movie with great hand to hand combat sequences. And I feel like, um, <laughs> the, uh, Harley Quinn movie that came out earlier this year had great hand to hand combat sequences that we hadn't seen in a movie like that in a long time. And I think, uh, this one, that's what struck me. I, I loved, and I think that's why I originally fell in love with terrible martial arts movies, um, was great hand-to-hand combat sequences. When you cast someone who's capable of doing it, and you don't have to put in a bunch of cuts to make them look like they can, and you don't have to cut away so that we can't see the stunt double, I, I think it matters, and it makes a difference, and it's so beautiful to see it shot. Back the camera up, this sequence... Um, when he first meets, when uh, Jet Li and, and Donnie Yen first come together, and it's kind of the fake fight with the bamboo poles, it, it's beautiful because the camera's far enough away and you can see the whole thing start to finish. It's fantastic. I love it. And I think you're certain movies now you're starting to get, because you're at a point now where the people making movies are fans of movies like this, and they're starting to bring that back. And, and like the John Wick franchise has it to a bit, but there's still too many cuts in some of the sequences. But um extraction if you haven't seen i recommend but the others where you're um the woo assassins show that was on netflix if you haven't seen that watch that some of those sequences are great just really really high quality hand-to-hand comments of number one hire the people who can do it number two shoot it so we can watch it that's what i think that's what i mean that's what i always liked about the john wick films is the fact that Karen Reeves puts in so many hours into working with the stunt, yes. stunt team and stuff because they were saying like on the making of their third one it was something like he was there right from day one with all the stunt team like going yes. over and over and over things and it was yep. sort of like you know if you're not hurting then you're not doing it right and now it's that dedication to the craft and the respect as well of yes. where the inspiration is coming from that I really love about 
Keanu Reeves and when he goes off and makes um was it Man from Wusha? Man from Tai Chi. Man from Tai yeah. Chi. Karen, uh, Karen Mock was in that, wasn't she? Mm. Um, and again, I just love that sort of um, the fact he puts the time and effort into yeah. it rather than just like saying, oh, we'll just get the stunt guy, we'll shoot it really close up. Because that's what I hate about these Marvel movies. And everyone's like, oh, it's like the greatest action ever. It's all like when you have the big fight scene at the end of um, Infinity War. And mm-hmm. um, it's sort of like, yeah, it's there's a lot of things happening here, but I'm not connecting with any of it. It's, yeah, yet... it's fantastic CGI action, and it is a different category. And I, I love that as well, but I, it's 100% different than a really pure hand-to-hand combat sequence that's shot well and with two people who can actually do it. Mm. Mi- mixed in, of course, with... Uh, let's, let's not pretend it's all... Quite often the, the the film is sped up here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and we also have um, what, what are they calling it today? The Hong Kong hand and the Hong Kong Hong Kong foot. You'll see strange scenes where there's a there's a hat, there's a fist appears to be going at somebody, and it's a bit of a disembodied fist or a foot. You know, it's not real, but it's cut so brilliantly. But you're absolutely right. The vast majority of that, the camera steps back, and and Hark, mm-hmm. Hark's an expert at this. Hark, Hark is is half David Fincher. In that he does weird things. Did you notice the bit where, like where he, um, you know, when the, this guy's trying to burn the flag, and and we yeah. see the shot from within the oven. That's so Choi Hark, yeah. Mm-hmm. No one else would do that in Hong Kong cinema. Um, but at the same time, he hands over the action stuff to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And you put the camera back. You might move it around a bit to give some kinetic feel. But we let these two people just duke it out, and, and mm-hmm. we see it. Yeah. And it's almost like a dance. And we, spoke, a... we spoke about this in our come. Uh, I was going to say come dine with me, which is completely <laughs> different. Come, 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 come drink with me. Um, where you know in, in that film, you know, the, the lead actress was an ex ballet dancer because the action they wanted the action to be balletic, and I, I do feel that this film that those two guys are acrobats they are fighters they are dancers yeah. they are yeah. they're all these things and we just get to see them yes. uh, do their stuff you know i don't mind a born film you know but i get an epileptic fit if i watch it too long <laughs> yeah, because yes. it's cut 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 close up close up close up close up and that has a certain that has a certain dynamic to it but how much of that is real you'll never know well, the, I love the comparison to uh, the first Mortal Kombat movie. Some of the sequences there are fantastic. When the, especially some of the Scorpion stuff and the Sub-Zero stuff, because they hired actual martial artists in those as well. And, well, that movie is very silly. <laughs> there it's are a some... masterpiece. It's just waiting for its Criterion release any day now. <laughs> All right, how excited are you about the reboot that should be coming out soon? Question mark? Um... um... <laughs> I mean, I'm always excited for Mortal Kombat. I mean, I I launched movies and tea with Kim over there just because we were so excited to talk about Mortal Kombat. So um, <laughs> that's how we ended up talking about Paul W. S. Anderson on our first season because we both loved yep. Event Horizon and we both loved Mortal Kombat. And yeah, Mortal Kombat is like the ultimate sleepover movie of my '90s childhood. Um, yes, and it still holds up wonderfully now. Um, I agree. And even a though practical parts of it don't make sense. oral puppet. I mean, I'm excited. I mean, the new anime that they put out uh, the venture scorpions really good as well so there's many exciting directions that they can go with the franchise especially now they've rebooted it with the last couple of games so i think it's all feeling fresh again 
the cast for the new movie is kind of exciting, and and I'm it's yeah, it's going to be very very interesting. We'll see where that goes. For this film, I mean, do you think the film sort of stands up on its dramatic qualities, or do you think the real sort of draw here is just to watch some really kick-ass martial arts uh, action? Obviously, directed by martial arts. Um, action choreographer extraordinary young Wu Ping. I, I think it's a good balance honestly I, I think certainly the reason you're gonna convince someone to watch it is the fights but there's enough there of really interesting stuff balanced with um the backdrop of actual events I, I think it's a good balance of everything I think there's there's enough here for everyone to find something they like yeah yeah the the What's gonna sell the tickets is the fights, but I like the the in between stuff. I like the comedic beats, and I like the the interaction of the characters too. I think it, it's all good. Yeah, I think there's a real there's a real um, what's the word the 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 interplay between Jet Li and Rosamund Kwan and yes. um, Mac Max Mock really works. I mean, I, I was joking before. You know, there's 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 a, there's a whole scene where they're eating dog stew. <laughs> which and, and Rosamund Corn doesn't know what she's eating, and there's this there's this real charm between the three characters where you didn't tell her what we're having. Oh, what am I having? Oh, nothing, 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 nothing. And then Jet Li lets slip that it's dog stew, and then Rosamund Corn goes, hey, it's, "It's all a bit overacted. It's all a bit silly, but it's absolutely charming." And I believe yeah. in the bond of those characters, and that's kind of important because these characters, you know, go through the you know different people might all the different roles other than Rosamund Corn as 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 you know, that's what exists across these six films. And I know it doesn't think much of the last one, but <laughs> or indeed four or five probably as well. But but prove me those... wrong, internet. <laughs> <laughs> but but those characters, the journey they go on, the the role they play as surrogates for the audience, I think it's really good. Like, yeah, of course, it's all about those. There's three fights in this film, which it's all about. Yeah, it's the two Donnie Yen and Jet Li fights, and it's the and it's the destruction of the White Lotus clan, which you know th- th- this is the only film I know that has two gigantic set pieces at the end. You know, it's, <laughs> but you get to you know I I remember I watched these films in order about ten years ago. Somebody introduced me to them, and one by one by one by one, and I loved them all. But what I loved, I loved the characters, and. I, I don't really remember who the bad guy in any of the films is or what happens to them. I don't care because they're, they're just they're just it's like comic books. Yeah, they're just comic book villains. But the the characters for me is what's more important about this. And then of course you go off on the deep dives, don't you? And you find out well who was this person? Is this person real? Where's this sit in history? So this I always feel there's this this little foundation of history mm-hmm. also makes it interesting to me as well. But I think that's me. I've always I've always enjoyed the sort of the, the social political aspect of of of, of films anyway, um, and that, this film for me just got it in spades. And yeah. you know, along with The Godfather and Empire, Godfather Two and Empire Strikes Back, it's and Scream Two, it's one of those sequels which is far superior to a pretty good original. Sorry, are you, I love the fact you put Scream Two. As like one of your, <laughs> you mentioned no, you know, not like Mad Max Two or <laughs> no, because Mad Max Scream Two isn't really a Mad Max Two isn't really a sequel. Okay, it's well, I won't include Evil Dead Two either. They are both we will really have good words films. after this, and yeah, <laughs> there's but, opinions but, to be had about what Mad Max Two is in relation to that series. So, 
<laughs> but you, you know what I mean. You know, mm-hmm. very very rare for a Hong Kong sequel to actually be a sequel. Lots of films have two on the end. I'm talking to you, Swordsman, <laughs> and I am Monkey. You have nothing to do with the original film, and it's even rarer to find a Hong Kong sequel that's better than the original. And uh, yeah, it's special. One thing I would ask though. Do you think, Elwood, this film could be shown in mainland China today? Mm. There's a reason I'm asking. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure, but then again, I'm not fully up to the speed of the current political situation in China, to be honest. Okay. So the the MacGuffin of the film is that flag. Yes. Right. Um, yep. There's the flag that they're, they're they're trying to rescue. At the end of the film, um, spoilers. Um, Jet and Arfoon, well, of course, confuse real people and characters. Um, Wong Fei Hung and Arfoon are, are get stuck behind, and Rosamund Kwan's character, Aunt 13, gets, goes off on a ferry with um, Dr. Sanya. And um, the flag gets unfurled, and it's quite clearly the flag of the Republican movement, which actually is now known as the Taiwanese flag. Oh! <laughs> That would never be allowed no. to be shown that, mainland then, Chinese TV. Then the answer to your question is no. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm just fascinated. There must be another edit somewhere where that final scene isn't in it, and they go straight to Jackie Chan singing. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, I was quite shocked to see that on it. Actually, I, I'd, I'd forgotten, and maybe I'm more aware of the, uh, of the history and the politics of it now. But yeah. Interesting. I'm glad you brought up the fact Jackie Chan sings the end credits because the opening credits and the, and the reoccurring theme throughout um, "A Man Should Better Himself" is sung by George Lam, which I would argue is a better version than Jackie Chan's version. So I don't know why they decide to include his version at the end because he's not well, associated with the film in any way. Well, because Drunken oh. Master, which Jackie Chan obviously plays Wong Fei Hung in, a young Wong Fei Hung in as well. That theme, although not sung, is part of Drunken Master. So I think they're tying together all the portrayals of this character. Yeah, into that. But obviously in all all six of these films, that very much is, you know, that has now been known as the Wong Fei Hung theme. And it's it's from this, not because it was in the soundtrack to Drunken Master. Mm. I I have to say, it does like give away kind of like what way the fight's going when they suddenly drop that end. And you can tell yeah. basically by the point they're in the track of how much longer the fight's got left to go. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. reaching a climax, though. I guess it's going to end soon. Um, anything else that we want to bring up on this one? I know we've obviously talked a fair bit about many things on this episode already, so. going to be our longest episode ever. But did you like it, Jeanette? Did you, I did. Did you feel, because I think you came to it fairly cold. I did. 100%. You didn't know what to expect. And would you. Would you be interested in watching the first film or the, 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 any of the subsequent films or do you, would, are you happy with it on its own? I think it certainly stands on its own. I, I have enough of an interest now that I would, I would be interested in watching some of the others. Maybe not the first one. Only want to look forward. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I am intrigued enough and I think it was certainly entertaining enough that I, I would absolutely be willing to watch more. Sounds like an introduction to further viewing, Elwood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you did like this film, what would you like to pair it with? So, I don't know, Jeanette, Stephen, who wants to go first? So, I've got three films, and I've mentioned them all already. Um, 
and I, I imagine Elwood's going to pick one of these, but you never know. Um, so I would actually go for the next film, Once Upon a Time in China 3. Damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you Once Upon a Time in China 3, because I'm sure we like it for the same reason. Okay. Um, if you want another Wong Fei Hung based film with Donnie Yen in it, go and watch. Is this going to be damn it as well? I, I, um, I, do you just carry on? I'll just I'll figure something out. Yun Wu Ping directed uh, Donnie Yen the next year in Iron Monkey, where Donnie Yen plays Wong Fei Hung's dad, <laughs> and and there is a young Wong Fei Hung in it as well, who was who was one of the Ten Tigers of Canton. Um, really fantastic martial arts movie. Obviously, it's Donnie being the leading character. Huge amount of fun. Um, there is an Iron Monkey two, nothing to do with this. And the other film, which again I've already mentioned, is another Wong Fei Hung film, which is Jackie Chan's Drunken Master, which is a comedy, um, but really brilliant um, Jackie Chan film. But again, he's playing a young Wong Fei Hung, very different to how um, Jet Li plays it with his um, stoic umbrella wielding ways um you know, <laughs> jackie chan plays it for laughs and obviously the the thing is that he has to get absolutely stone ass drunk to uh to fight and has the training montage sequence which many other films afterwards would copy so yeah i'd say drunken master and iron monkey and obviously once upon time time in china three yeah definitely iron monkey's a real phenomenal uh donnie yen movie it's Great, uh, not only for obviously the connection to this film, but it features an absolute standout showdown at the end with the uh, Eye Monkey fighting a Shaolin monk on top of burning poles in uh, a really phenomenal sort of sequence. But the film itself has got a lot of fun elements to it. It's very big on waifu, so it does uh, perhaps lose some of, some of the charm in that effect, but it is a really fun movie and definitely one worth checking out. Um, you mentioned already, Once Upon a Time in China 3, uh, this time set in the late 19th century. Um, this is sort of like a real sort of high point for myself with the, the series, although a lot of people would argue that 2 is the best. I think this one in particular has got a lot of fun sequences, especially during its big climatic uh, sequence with a showdown between different lion dance troops, which really, if you think that this film sort of goes a bit over the top with some of its waifu elements, then you should really see what they do with the finale of this one, so not to spoil anything there. Um, the other one I would also recommend to check out as well would be um, Jet Li's Fearless, which for the longest time was supposed to be his final martial arts masterpiece, but uh, it's a real phenomenal film and if it had not been for the warlords which released the following year i would say it's one of his one of his uh, best films um if you can get a hold of the director's cut as well which also features not only an additional fight sequence but also michelle yo and also rejiggers the running time of the film as rather than having the opening showdown sequence that's moved to the back and instead we have michelle yo as a modern day martial arts practitioner um saying about how the importance of jet Li's character has to martial arts practitioners so those would i mean as i said those would be my free agree with yourself though Stephen. again it's uh once upon a time in china free um i'm monkey and uh fearless definitely being ones worth checking out um other than that, I think also the Ip Man films, in particular Ip Man 1 and Ip Man 2, if you want to see more sort of Donnie Yen doing what Donnie Yen does best. Um, 
In particular, Ip Man 1, seeing uh, Donnie Yen take on 20 karate practitioners, or Ip Man 2, seeing him take on Sammo Hong in a very elaborate tea house sequence is uh, a lot of fun as well. So, But uh, Jeanette, is there anything you would pair with this film? I Yeah, I would mention Hero again. The 2002 was, again, Jet Li, and to see the Jet Li and Donnie Yen matchup again. I love Hero. I think it's beautifully done, mm. and I think it, it would pair well with this. Good choice. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much, Jeanette, for coming and joining us and uh, allowing us to introduce you to the crazy world of Once Upon a Time in China, too. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, again, if people want to come and find your words, where's the best place to come and find you? Uh, best place, you can uh, check out my reviews on uh, jwardadventures.blogspot.com, is where I post everything. Um, and then, you know, I'm on all the social medias. You can find me. Cool. <laughs> Well, thank you again for uh, joining us, and uh, thank you everyone for listening as always. You can, of course, check us out uh, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We we'll also check out our blog, which is stationcinemafilmclub.wordpress.com, which we have now fully updated. So you can not only check out a full archive of episodes, you can check out the mixtapes. David Brook has just brought a huge stack of reviews for the Movie Vault series, so we're going to be uploading those in the uh, next coming days as well. So plenty of exciting stuff to check out there as well. And uh, wherever you happen to be listening to us, please do hit the like and subscribe button. It uh, really helps raise the profile of the show, much like a nice review. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate all your feedback. Obviously, next episode is number 49 as we hone in on that all-important episode 50. And it's my choose turn to pick the film again. And for the next film we're going to be looking at is A Bittersweet Life. Um, so, Stephen, you excited for that one? Well, you know how much I love Kim Ji-Woon. Um, we did Taylor Two Sisters a few episodes. Well, probably more episodes than I think back, which I think you enjoyed. Um, Bittersweet Life, very different movie. Um, but one of my favourite directors, one of my favourite actors. Yeah, I'm really excited about um, about about talking about Bittersweet Life. Yeah, I'm excited to revisit it. I mean, I remember seeing it back when it came out in 2005. It was sort of like that second wave of films that fold in after the initial uh, renaissance in um, people being interested in Asian cinema again. And certainly it really marks Korean cinema in particular as being the one to that people should be excited about so i'm excited to revisit it especially so uh hopefully uh you can all join us for that one but um again thank you to our special guest jeanette for joining us thank you thank you Stephen. pleasure as always and uh thank you as always to you the listener for listening so until next time stay safe and wash those damn hands <laughs> good night <laughs> きのうの恋は忘れてきのうのあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ月が砕け散っても星が燃えて落ちても踊り続けていたい夜なのさ胸に刺さった
昨日の恋は忘れて昨日のあの子は忘れて踊り続けていたい夜なのさ」